This week we're going to be looking at Keen, which is the 2004 film written and directed by Lodge Kerrigan. Uh, it was his third feature film. It stars Damien Lewis as William Keane, who's a man just teetering on the edge, mentally and physically, scarred by the abduction of his young daughter a year earlier um, at the Port Authority bus station in New York. Uh, he's spending all of his time trying to recreate the experience in his mind, but um, gradually becoming mentally ill um, in the process. <clears throat> so it's an upbeat one this week. Um, <laughs> it's a tough sell. It's one of those movies you've been talking to me about it. I think probably since it came out, and almost I, I'd say you probably mention it like once a year. You know, have you have you seen this yet? Have you seen this yet? I don't. I've, I, it's I haven't really thought about it until you came up with the idea for these podcasts. That's when it kind of popped mm-hmm. into my mind. I'm, it's, I, I definitely remember you talking about it. You know, I don't know if you saw it when it came out, but I definitely remember you talking about it a long time ago. See, I can't remember how I came across it at all. It's as if all three of his films just kind of appeared in the house. Um, and I don't know which one I heard of first or why. Because I've, I've got his first film, Clean Shaven, which shamefully I haven't watched yet, which is his most famous film. I have Claire Dolan, his second film, um, which is my, my least favourite of them, despite having um, Katrine Cartledge in it. And this one, which is my favourite, and it, it can't have been long after it came out, and I have no idea how I came across... I know Clean Shaven was in the Criterion Collection, which probably would have been how I came across that, but I've, I have literally no memory of buying this one. So it's kind of just arrived in it the house. It just manifests yeah. in your life somehow. <clears throat> and I know I watched it back then and really enjoyed it. Well, enjoy is probably the wrong word, but really, really appreciated it and liked it. Um, and I, I don't think I've gone back to it since then you know until we've come to do it now so do you know um lodge kerrigan's work at all uh no actually clean shaven i know by reputation but i've never watched um the same with the girlfriend experience um and then researching this i saw a little bit about his kind of his lost movie yeah um, i only heard about that recently yeah in god's hands which he said was a fully produced feature film that was scrapped because of negative damage yeah there was only one print made apparently or something and it sounds like it had a similar thing to this i think clean shaven is about a man trying to find his daughter and in god's hands was about a religious fundamentalist a christian whose daughter is abducted and he loses faith so it seems like there's a recurring theme maybe the uh the terror of fatherhood has got to lodge kerrigan it's unnerved him yeah because i was i kind of lost track of him after this because i am what you might call a bad fan and then he kind of cropped up when the girlfriend experience became um, a TV series because I knew the Steven Soderbergh movie and quite liked it, and it looked intriguing. Him and Amy Semitz co-directing what well, two seasons of the girlfriend experience, but I thought the first was by far the better. And he's kind of back on my radar now. I know he's done a, f- a fair bit of TV in the in the interim years, and n- not bad shows either, like Homeland, Bates Motel, The Americans, and The Killing. But yeah, it's and he's part of the sort of like a, a sort of loose collective circle of people around the girlfriend experience now with um, Shane Carruth kind of involved. Well, he was involved to a certain extent, but recent developments between Amy, him and Amy Semitz have kind of scuppered that. But it's, you know, it's kind of launched Amy Semitz's career as a director as, as well as an actress. So that's kind of all I know about him. He seems like a genial guy, slightly resembles hp lovecraft um, <laughs> yeah i read a, a really nice interview with him um around the time he was making this um and he was saying that he really enjoyed uh moving into tv and because he he called himself a director with no style meaning that he could kind of just walk into a, a genre piece and think of a way to shoot it that you know is isn't tied to his filmography you know he just approaches everything fresh i think he was saying in god's hands was shot very traditionally with traditional coverage and this film keen he wanted to shoot long takes and Mm. just shoot on a single magazine and kind of keep it you know fresh in its own way but there's a nice quote actually on um from lodge kerrigan just talking about his motivation for making keen and he said for me what i was primarily interested in was how a person would deal and survive having their child abducted if the child was in their care when it happened and how in a very short period of time your life can change irreversibly. Mm. Can you ever survive the extent of that, the grief that that would cause and how destabilizing would that be and how would you move beyond that in some way and continue to have love? It's really nice to read like in black and white 
that this actually is a story about a man who has lost his daughter because you see people kind of suggesting in a couple of contemporary reviews you know saying oh well possibly he never did lose his daughter and he's just mentally ill or he's in some way involved in her disappearance or something it's like that's the most lazy cynical reading of this film you could possibly have yeah but i think it's all it's all there in the film in or enough clues that you kind of you understand what's happened even if you don't know all of the details of what's happened well one of one of the things i really like about it is that it, it lays out its cards in the very first lines of the movie in the very first scene it makes it absolutely clear that this is what's happened mm-hmm. to him this is this is the cause of everything that you see later you know as you know of the second edit that steven soderbergh did just just before the movie locked yeah that's right that's that's on the dvd as well and after i'd done my notes for this i kind of emotionally i couldn't bear to watch the film again all the way through but I kind of skim through it to see what the order of events was. And in the Soderbergh version, all the kind of day-to-day stuff is first, where he's kind of on the roadside, washing, looking for work, uh, hanging out in the bar. So it kind of portrays him as somebody somebody who's kind of on the edge and mentally ill, but without a specific reason. And it's not until 25 minutes in that you get the the explanation for this. I see, yeah. Which, you know, could possibly cast some doubt on it. But in the released version it's absolutely upfront clear that the cause of all of this is the fact that he's lost his daughter. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it, you know, I, I think it's a really nicely constructed film, but I, f- I find within two minutes your kind of anxiety levels are high and <laughs> they just stay there for like, what's the runtime? It's like 92 or 93 minutes. Yeah. It's, it's pretty brief, but it's a very tense kind of, your blood pressure's up and just maintains all the way through. It's like a an exercise in creating a tense atmosphere and just masterfully holding that you know the combination of director and you know i'm a little bit loath to say actor as well because i have my own kind of prejudice against all the kind of upper class british actors even though all of their work is always good you know i just uh, you know there's something amiss with the the landscape of british actors at the moment but you can't really blame them for it either. Mm. And especially after a, a performance like this, you know, I, I was blown away by Damien Lewis, which I find really annoying, partially because I always get mixed up with Toby Stevens, who kind of ruined a Bond film. So. It was nice to watch this again for the podcast and remind myself of Damien Lewis trying, really. I don't have many guilty pleasures and I don't watch much crap TV, but one crap TV show I watch is Billions. Oh yeah, okay. I've never seen it, but I've heard good things. Uh, no, they're wrong. There's no good oh, things. Really? There's no good things to be said for it. There's some interesting characters, and it's funny, but it's also really twatty and really cheap, and it's getting worse as it goes on. Isn't it Paul Giamatti as well? Yeah, I mean, you can't argue with the cast. It's got Paul Giamatti, um, Maggie Siff, Damien Lewis, um, and it has Asia Kate Dillon, who is the best thing in it and is brilliant. But it's a terrible show. Uh, and Damien Lewis just kind of is on autopilot. Like he's just playing a, a, a gurning caricature in every scene of every episode. Oh so it's nice to see him in this, giving a searing performance and being really, really good. I mean, I have to say this is the only thing I've seen him in. Um, and I was kind of reluctant to watch it because he was in it. So, And I was wrong. Mm. I just want to flag that up. I was wrong. He is fantastic in this. There's a couple of moments in this film. His expression as you see the kind of gears grinding in his mind and his kind of flitting in and out of reality and uh, his consciousness, like it's absolutely staggering work. I mean, it it helps that the camera is kind of right on him. You know, there's no no space for him to breathe at all, but we we do watch his kind of, the tiny nuances of his expressions as he's kind of struggling to, maintain kind of full consciousness it's oh my god it's, it's really really breathtaking stuff i was i was really impressed and thinking oh i should watch something else that he's in but now you talk me out of it <laughs> <laughs> um it's a completely inappropriate movie to mention in the same breath as this one but if you ever get the chance to see lawrence kasdan's Dreamcatcher, the stephen king adaptation oh right okay that's an a just remarkable movie on so many levels it's it's appalling it's shockingly bad and it has all of the kings of tv in starring roles in it it has thomas jane it has damian oh, yeah. lewis it has jason lee and timothy oliphant like, like four of the leads oh yeah okay wow 
it's just a remarkable bad dream. It's I would say it's possibly a worse movie than Paradise Alley. Oh. But it's constantly surprising in how bad it is. It has Damien Lewis giving such spirited effort to play an absolutely impossible, stupid, even on the page must have seen stupid role. That's one of the many things that it's worth catching it for. He's such a good sport to give that a go. I did want to flag up that there seemed to be a sort of subgenre of films in the kind of late 90s into the early noughties, which were just kind of obsessive lone men wandering around various cities trying to solve puzzles that they don't fully comprehend a handful came to mind like spider uh with ray fines set in london there was um pi aronofsky's film in new york punch drunk love was a little bit like that kind of a little bit memento uh, memento the pledge it's a proper like late nineties, early noughties crisis of male uh, identity and mm. direction. I I did think of the pledge when I was watching this. Um, Keen comes across as a, a kind of hybrid of of Alice in the Cities, and then it turns into the pledge at the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah I did wonder. This was kind of your second recommendation about a middle aged man abducting young girls. I was w- wondered whether you're having like your Jimmy Savile moment where you. <laughs> so confident you're not going to get caught that you're just kind of telling everybody should we talk about uh let yes let's talk about some of the other people involved um yeah yeah definitely there's uh well for politeness sake let's talk about the dop and the editor dop is john foster who um has done a lot of documentary work which is perfect cv for the shooting style of this Editor is Andrew Haffitz, who again seems to work steadily. The films that I like off of his CV, um, he did Larry Clark's Bully, which I'd really like to watch again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember loving that. Yeah. Um, and two movies by Whit Stillman, Damsels in Distress, which I made 25 minutes into, uh, and The Last Days of Disco, which I really, really enjoyed. Steven Soderbergh as exec producer, who's usually, well, apparently was very, very supportive and not hands-on in the um, interfering way, but very supportive of the shoot overall. And He raised the finance as well, didn't he, Soderbergh? Yeah. And I think he was a producer on the uh, the Lost film, wasn't he, in God's Hand? Yes, that's right. Yeah, they, they, got, they got a full insurance claim, a full insurance payment on that, so that, that must have funded this. It's mad to think of that, isn't it? Like a, just a whole film lost. They must have got to the point where they'd cut an egg and they had the cut an egg sitting somewhere and it just got damaged and that, that's all, what can you do? unless you try and reconstruct it from alternative takes but that would be a soul destroying process yeah yeah that's the danger of finishing on film do you know what format this was shot on yeah is it 16 35 35 okay uh because he said they only have um 400 foot loadings which would give you four minutes so that's 35 mil yeah yeah that's 10 on 16 isn't it it's funny to watch this again years later because when i watched it in 2004 uh i knew amy ryan who plays um, Lynn, and I knew Abigail Breslin, who was one of the one of the most popular child actresses at the time. Uh, but then watching it again, um, the There's scene a few, in the bar, uh, familiar yeah. faces, isn't there? From uh, yeah, is it the Chris Bauer? Chris Bauer is Wire the bartender. And the Deuce. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Did you recognise the motel clerk? I did. It's Christopher Evan Welsh who played uh, Peter Gregory in Silicon Valley. The late Christopher Evan Welsh. It's, um, I know. Oh, that was really gutting when you just kind of clicked on to do a little bit of research. I was like, oh, I love that guy. What's he been up to? Oh, shit, he's dead. Yeah, he's... just he died immediately after that first season. And that's why they kind of wrote the character out. Because yeah, they're yeah. thinking, what can you do? You can't replace a performance like that. And then I, there's a very familiar face a little bit later on um, where Keane kind of tips over the edge and attacks somebody in the, um, it, the bus Frank station. Frank Wood, isn't it? Frank the, Wood, uh, yeah. from Another character actor who's in The Nick and uh, The Night Of, and he's in the Joker film as well. Yeah, Michael Clayton and Flight of the Concords. I find the opening of this film uh, gets more and more disturbing the more you watch it. Uh, it has a, a cold open of Keane at the bus station uh, New York, uh, and you get the immediate explanation of you know the setup of the movie. The very first thing he says, you know, I, I, I lost my daughter here. He's got a newspaper article, hasn't he? That he gives to the um the guy at the ticket booth, or shows it to him. He's like, "Do you remember me? I was here a year ago. My daughter was abducted. Like she was wearing this coat. Have you seen her since?" And the guy's like, "Mate, no, I don't know what you're talking about." It's it just perfectly captures that feeling. I guess freefall is the word. I mean, if I were if I were writing a movie review of this, my title for it would be Freefall. 
it's just that feeling when you're so lost that you're kind of reaching out and, and grasping at intuition and superstition because there's absolutely nothing to support you. You know, you've you've lost something and there's no way back. And he's constantly replaying what happened on the day and talking it through to himself. And then following a hunch, he kind of gets onto a bus. And then from the bus window, sees a purple coat, which he thinks might be his daughter's and gets off, kind of ends up shouting his daughter's name into the traffic, wanders through a tunnel, and then there's an image that ends this section. I mean, you could you could have made this opening section of the film as a short film in itself. And I think it would be it would be quite powerful. But the um the final image that really gets me is where he's lying on a grass verge sort of in the late afternoon, early evening, as you know, you've got heavy traffic speeding by. Yeah, he's in like a, a reservation area, isn't he, between two lanes of traffic going in opposing directions and it's raining and he's just laying on the grass isn't he in the fetal position like broken it's the physicality of that and the the setting the time of day and everything about it is just is about dislocation as i say being in free fall and, and being separated from society one of the best things about this movie is is the locations it uses you're on the outskirts of the city and none of these spaces are really kind of pleasant in any way or comfortable they're just kind of transitory spaces yeah yeah it's kind of cheap cheap motels the bus station as i say the area where you know the, the grass verge in the middle of the heavy traffic it's it's not a space that's for human beings it's just a space that's there and he's occupying it and it's odd the film's quite timeless as well because i mean i'm sure for an american viewer there are sort of cultural specifics in the background that, that would tie it to a certain kind of year but for me you know it could have been made in the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s mm, sure, there's, sure. There's, there's no mobile phones there's nothing to kind of tie it to any time so again that's kind of drifting and free floating and i i don't like to use the word mise-en-scene uh, because people laugh at me but it's just a brilliant use of mise-en-scene it's just like everything sure, sure. feeds into the to the feeling you know everything by design feeds into the feeling of not not being attached to anything or connected to anything there's a lot of kind of fairly kind of sordid details of behavior that that you get immediately after that there's some real physicality in some of some of the later stuff after this that that you know that really ties it to to, to the physical experience of, of being almost homeless and you know the scenery is washing frantically in the men's room there's a great scene shortly after this where he's back in his motel and you know we understand that he's using his disability benefit payments to pay the back rent on his room and also to get booze and to score drugs and to go like he's kind of he's very much in the process of trying to numb his own mind from driving him crazy and we see kind of moments of lucidity especially when he's talking to other human beings but the points when he's trapped in his own mind he's completely lost and i think he's you know wasting his money trying to numb all of that those voices and that kind of chaos that mania in in his own mind um but there's a sequence where he's had a few beers and he lays down in in the bed in his motel and he can just smell himself and like his disgust but almost like his powerlessness to change that in the moment i think that there's that there's a couple of great moments there's one where he can't look at himself in the mirror when he's brushing his teeth and then that's paid off beautifully in the end sequence where he's just packing some stuff up and we see that he's strung the shower curtain across the mirror so that he doesn't have to see his own reflection and like yeah i, I just love all of all of that detail which i think is more, you know more in the writing about how he's trying to cope with being conscious and aware of his own mental freefall like you say i guess the next the next key scene um you have a short scene where he's kind of buying clothes for himself in a in a cheap clothing store department store and then he kind of he's looking at little girls clothes and has a you know a fairly pleasant and polite exchange with another customer there about girls clothes sizes but you can see you know everything in his life is kind of drifting back to to this one subject he's talking about being presentable as well isn't he like yeah. when they're reunited he has to be has to be presentable he's keeps looking at himself and being sort of disgusted by what he's, he, the reflection he sees the next major scene, I guess, is the scene in the bar. There's a few really nice interim shots where you see him. It's actually the only time really in the movie where he's, he looks like he's in a slightly busier environment with lots of people around. Mm. And he looks like he's wandered further into Manhattan and just the environment kind of brings on stress and he, he can't be around people and society anymore. But I think that's his orbit, right? I think wherever he's ended up as a kind of, you know, he's, he's on disability benefits. So he's been diagnosed with something 
and is living in a kind of flop house. But the abduction of his daughter took place in Manhattan, and I think that's why he keeps getting drawn back to the Port Authority area. You can see that he can't take the noise and, and the environment, so kind of ducks into a bar for a drink to calm himself, but just kind of spirals into anxiety in there. It's a difficult scene to watch, isn't it? It's really harrowing because he's smashing back the vodkas like really quickly just to, to, I think, to shut the outside world out and kind of numb the inside world for him as well. And then he puts sugar pie honey bunch on the um, on the jukebox, but once it louder gets into a kind of hostile exchange with the bartender and then just puts his head up into the speaker, doesn't he, as if to mm. try and just kind of erase any other external... It's got all those really nice details of behaviour, like it's it's a song that he knows, but he doesn't know it back to front, so he keeps kind of like fluffing the lyrics, which is which is always embarrassing to watch, and then it just makes it even more embarrassing and painful overall. Hey, how do I hear the music? Can I hear the music? Myself, love you and louder. Can you make it louder? I can barely hear it. Loud enough. Come on, man. I paid for it. Turn it up. You turn up the music. I don't like it. Get the fuck out. Can do. We turn up the music. You turn up the music. You turn up the music. We turn up the music. 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 He does that thing which I've seen like my kids do, where he just starts shaking his head from side to side. You know, it messes up all the fluid in the inner ear and just kind of yeah, just shuts everything else out. I think once you kind of get into that. There's a hard cut out of that, isn't there? And then there's the, the point where he's uh, just knocks on somebody's door and, and buys some Coke. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, that's the worst. Uh, you, you've, you're just saying to yourself, no, please, that's the last thing that you need. You do not yeah, need Coke. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I can understand to knock back a beer at the end of an exhausting day just to try and get yourself to sleep, but hmm. uh, Coke, you, you don't need that. Yeah, not in, not in your condition. Yeah. There's a weird, well, not a weird moment, quite a sort of comedic moment in that where somebody's walking past the dealer's house and so William just turns and puts his nose into the wall just like faces the wall as if to avoid detection as if to become invisible then we're back at the at the bus station yeah there's one little because throughout the film he's kind of he has uh, it's not even a monologue it's just like this mumbling articulation of whatever thought is has just popped into his head at this point he's saying a girl is dead He's here. A girl is dead. He keeps saying that, which really just put the willies at me. I found that like deeply unnerving, as if he's unable to accept the final part of this story, as if he can't quite process that. This is the only scene that I felt was slightly overextended. Um, and I felt that the kind of real-time thing hindered it. He's hanging around the bus station at night time now, waiting around and, and making up omens and hoping that his superstitions and things will, will start to make sense. But there's a, there is a lovely moment in this where he's um, he's absolutely certain that at the right time, it's between like 4.26 and 4.30 a.m. or something, that he's going to capture this guy in the act of abducting another girl. And there's a wonderful shot where he's just kind of hiding around the corner and you see it cross his face that he's made a terrible mistake. He doesn't know what he's doing. And he goes from like absolute certainty to utter confusion. And I mean, that's that's all on Damien Lewis, that, that moment where you can read it so clearly and you feel like that world collapse again. For what time is it? Okay, still a minute. One more minute. He's here. It's 
still too early. Still too early. Just wait. He's gonna come. He's gonna come. He's gonna come. He's here. I know it. It's not surprising, given that he's had some coke that day, where it kind of tips over into violence uh, and he kind of attacks a passerby and then manages to run off. I kind of mark this as the end of Act One, where you've kind of established his character and, you know, the potential dangers there. But also, he's he's still kind of buzzing, isn't he, at this point? So the, the next sequence that we see is him just riding buses all day going from bus to bus to bus just to be occupied you know something to do something to keep his mind from trailing in on itself i do i do get the feeling with the kind of crying on the bus he's finally you know got some temporary emotional release maybe that's you know one of the uses of the drugs if he can give himself a boost and then have a come down the come down can give you take you to an actual trough that you wouldn't you you wouldn't otherwise reach so i guess having reached some emotional release he seems quite quite calm and placid when he gets back to his motel and this is where you meet Lynn and Kira he loans Lynn some money at this point he does seem to be in kind of a, a fairly placid and, and lucid state I guess he's kind of burned himself out overnight yeah but I also think you know mental illness isn't exclusively one state of mind I think he moves in and out of lucidity and I saw that a little bit when um, when my mum had Alzheimer's and depending on who she was talking to <laughs> would depend on how mu- how much her kind of synapses were firing and how she was able to kind of communicate and i definitely feel that that's a nice observation in this when he's talking to lynn and kira i think you know he definitely invests too much in this new friendship but you know he does find some sense of normalcy like he's able to kind of be a fairly articulate pleasant and then you know i'm so worried about him spending all of his disability benefit in one week but he basically gives them a hundred dollars and then goes to a club and you know has more coke and has sex in the toilets but then we see him the next morning and he's out looking for a job so you kind of know that he's somewhere in his mind he's like okay i've spent all my money again on idiot <laughs> you know so and then he's like looking for work the club scene's quite interesting um i like the fact that it's shot the same as the rest of the film it's shot in this kind of close up or over the shoulder style uh, so you don't get a big wide hands in the air shot that every yeah, single yeah. every single filmmaker seems to feel obliged to do and the pickup is quite interesting as well it's kind of on, on both sides it's you know it's slightly seedy and there's like an emotional desperation there almost as much with the woman he picks up as as with him and it's just this kind of like lonely intimacy but at the same time you do see sort of like a, a selfish driven side of him don't you he's just kind of fairly oblivious yeah, yeah. to her after he gets going really and I can't, I can't help hoping that he's had a shower before he went out. I mean, it, the film's gone to great pains to, to make him seem quite it, itchy and smelly. and Yeah, he's falling through the cracks, isn't he? You know, yeah. His hygiene levels have gone. So. And following that, you've got the a major scene with Lynn and Kira back at the motel. Um, and this entire scene is actually omitted from Soderbergh's edit. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it's about 10, 15 minutes shorter. It, it lo- basically loses the, the connection between Keane and Lynn there's no emotional connection between them so when when she asks him to look after Kira it's purely out of necessity there's there's kind of like no betrayal of any friendship when he when he effectively abducts Kira later uh, it makes them both seem much harsher so yeah so in, in this scene you kind of you, you get some background on William and who he is and what he used to do he used to be a painter right he used to paint houses yeah do construction this is where kind of like the interesting parallels with Alice in the city come in it's it's a wife and mother temporarily estranged from the husband stroke father and you know a a transient man temporarily filling the void for them yeah he's not he's not quite the uh you know the delightful surrogate that that we had in alice in the cities though is he the 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 fact that 
you know, later on when he is alone with the child, you're just absolutely terrified the whole time that something's going to go wrong. Whereas Alice in the Cities, you quite enjoy their their adventure and their their burgeoning friendship. Nice use of um, lighting and colour scheme here. You know, it's a fairly tentative scene and you don't know where it's going to go, but it's it's kind of lit and shot in, you know, maybe it's just available light, but it's kind of warm reds and oranges and yellows and makes a change from all the kind of browns and greys and, and, and overcast skies that you get for the rest of the movie. And Keane's, Keane's quite good in a real situation with an actual other person, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. But I think this is kind of, you know, he's snapping back into reality. He's, he's having interaction with another human being and if he had more of that he would spend less time in his own mind and yeah it's just you know it's healthy isn't it to be around other people and to have conversations and to talk about yourselves and to get things out of your mind and into the air and be able to process them and I think he does so little of that that it's definitely something his subconscious (laughs) relishes you know it doesn't sabotage it you know he's able to just kind of exist in that room with Kira and uh, Lynn and just kind of be normal. Do you think the dancing at the end of the scene pushes it a little bit or? Yeah, yes. You know, when we talked about the midnight clear, I think people just kind of getting up to dance randomly. <laughs> I find that so hard to swallow in any situation, even from somebody that's mentally ill. It plays well. I mean, Lynn is as hesitant as you would be. I, th- I think it does hobble Soderbergh's edit that you don't get any emotional connection, but it does push it a little bit into melodrama. But then again, undercutting that immediately afterwards, you get Keen the next day following Lynn and kind of eavesdropping when she's on the phone. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's given him a new mission, hasn't it? A new purpose, something to actually focus all of his kind of manic energy onto is, you know, maybe being able to insert himself into their lives as the kind of the man that they're missing you know he's missing a family i think earlier on we got we get a very brief scene of him trying to phone his ex-wife don't we yeah um and he says when he was i didn't really pick up on it until this time around but when he's talking to lynn he says that um he was only married for two years yeah so i guess he would have been you know looking after his daughter as a single on his own when she was abducted well it's probably um shared uh custody isn't it so maybe he had her at the weekends yeah or something. and it happens on his watch which would yeah be... that's it it's just like it's all just all grim isn't it from any angle i mean it's the, like the biggest fear you have as a parent i can see why lodge kerrigan keeps coming back to it as a as a theme i mean i've been asked a few times to pick up other people's children from school and i find that the most terrifying thing in the world to have like responsibility for somebody else's children suddenly every car seems to be going twice as fast you know there's things falling from the sky just it's so terrifying to be responsible for a child yeah interestingly the the film starts shading in some potential threat here it kind of walks a fine line between what you were saying before you know hoping for the best and in that he you know just wants to absorb some of their familial normality but you also get this kind of creeping sense of unease you know that he might want something else yeah he breaks into their room doesn't he yeah Yeah. and yeah even even doing that it kind of from what you've seen of him so far that that whole thing okay so it's it's definitely crossing a line but you're still kind of ambiguous about about his motives for doing it you know does he just want to yeah it's kind of innocent enough in its own way for somebody breaking into somebody else's room, rolling around on the bed and smelling the pillows. You know, it, it's kind of there's something sweet about it at the same time. You know, maybe that's the uh, thing of men just feeling like they're entitled to go into a woman's space and invade it without any comeback. I mean, it's it's in. It's important to set this kind of unease up before he you know, spends time with Kira later. That's that's kind of yeah, and just to sort of remind us that his daughter was abducted. We have a, a, a bridging shot of him in his motel room reading from a newspaper about a girl that's been abducted and reunited with her parents, and it was her street smarts that got her through. And he's just kind of repeating that phrase all the time: her street smarts got her through. Yeah, and that, that starts him spiraling again, doesn't it? Um, yeah. And I I wondered if the, if at this point he was stuck in a cycle. I mean, it seems terribly unsympathetic to say it, but if he was like consciously winding himself up at this point, you know, if he's stuck in a behavioral cycle, has no other way of dealing with his grief, but, but to not just to be in this, in this place, but to keep himself in this place, you know, is he deliberately winding himself up here? Yeah. But you know, how do you move on from it? That's the thing, you know, it's such a cataclysmic. Is it 
because it's so cataclysmic that he's built up this repeated ritual, this thing that he goes through over and over again. And is he perhaps winding himself up at this point to, to, to get into it? If he is, it's not something he's conscious of. I think it's his subconscious. And this is where his mental illness, whatever he's been diagnosed with, that's where it's most manifest is in this inability to move past the grief and carry on with his life you know the fact that he's fixated and really just locked into this self-destructive cycle of repetition i think that's yeah that's that's his illness manifest lynn asks keen to look after kira which <laughs> makes your heart leap, I know, doesn't it? It's like, it makes no! the audience just Don't takes a deep breath and <laughs> and sits on the edge of its seat for the next 15 minutes uh, you know for, for all the tension it's it's until obviously the end it's it's quite a sweet scene you can see him using focusing on day-to-day stuff to block out you know he's got something to focus on even little minutiae of of, of asking it you know making sure she finishes her food that's sort of and asking her questions about her life and day-to-day stuff and he's kind of semi-conscious of the fact that this is actually allowing him to block out everything mm. else that's going on in his head well, he's got responsibility again as well hasn't he you know something something to do something to kind of justify his existence again he's he's a parent again and he's quite good at it isn't he yeah it's just you know this is the, the talent of the filmmaking to keep you unnerved though this like when he goes to the toilet in the mcdonald's and comes back out and just watches her from a distance from a vantage point behind a tree in the, in the restaurant and he's just watching and you're like okay just go over go back now go back now what are you doing i'm wondering if at that point that's where the idea occurs to him that he could possibly to use her as bait to use her as bait to recreate the yeah, situation sure but um, it's still like horrible because she's such a, like a just a sweet little kid who's already in a world of kind of upturned yeah world, she's she's already know. vulnerable isn't she yeah she's in like a flop house and her dad's in albany her mum's working as a waitress in new york like she's just like she's been moved to another school she's already insecure and you know this just adds to it and then in the ice rink cafe his kind of paranoia starts to creep up again oh my god what a what a scene this is though i mean in the world of the story it's really stressful and upsetting and terrifying because you don't know how far as he as he kind of slips over the edge how far he's going to go but also you know to see the craft that damien lewis brings to this moment is utterly believable it's it's just a fantastic piece of work from him if you were one of those people who was thinking that perhaps his mental state isn't entirely to do with his missing daughter this would be the scene that you that you would look at i mean it it makes me think if he didn't have you know if perhaps he wasn't happy in his life and and had some mental illness that his daughter's disappearance has exacerbated massively because this is this is unusual behavior isn't even for him yeah, I mean, I think that's one question that the film deliberately doesn't answer, and it and that's you know it's a kind of beautiful ambiguity. But whether he had mental illness before he was a father, whether he it's something that was kind of latent, or mm. whether it's something that that situation was the catalyst for, or just like you say, exacerbated. Very careful writing and performance in the next scene where Lynn returns. Yeah, I love this. Lynn's kind of evasive and you can see she's quietly shutting down the sort of latent emotional ties that she can see developing. She you know she she knows she's going back to her life and she's just kind of quietly closing those doors on him and yeah, you yeah. can see the the effect it's having on him. Yeah, but I, what I love about his performance is that it's like also like he's in some kind of grief muscle memory, you know, the way he responds to it. It's like he's responding to his previous separation from Anne. He's definitely invested too much emotion and his response has too much weight for it to be natural for Mm. what's actually happening. It definitely has all that history. And then you can see he's made a decision because he's packing hurriedly. And then you get the long monologue on the bed describing himself to himself, isn't he? My name is William Keane. Keane. K-E-A-N-E. I was born February 6th, 1970 at Yonkers General Hospital, Yonkers, New York. My father's name is Henry Keene. My mother was born Mary Conlin. She's dead. I have one brother, a half-brother, Robert Keene. I was married to an Annette Ed Kin on August 16th, 
1996, and divorced two years later, August 17, 1998. We had one child, a girl. What do you think the purpose of the monologue is, dramatically? Well, I think what what we're seeing with his with his mental condition, people with that kind of condition, they try and ground themselves with a reality check, you know, which is the bullet points of a life story. I think it's a way of reconnecting to the earth and to people and to be a person and to get out of your head to kind of recite something that you know off by heart which is generally your life story um again when my mum had alzheimer's uh, she's dead now but um when she had it she would do that she would kind of catalog key events from her life places that she'd lived people that she knew as a way of saying look i'm still conscious i still have this connection i i, I still exist and i think it's a, it's a bit like um just before you die the body floods itself with adrenaline and people get really kind of uh razor sharp and conscious and then they go and i think it it's a, another one of those um instincts that the body has that the mind has when it's losing control to try and exert some sort of sense of identity and control over over the storm that's coming there's something really really heartbreaking he's he's earned such trust from kira and he's you know betraying that and lying to a child and she just gives him more trust in return you know she's yeah, yeah. it's really really upsetting and you're trying to read what he's feeling you know you you really are focused on the performance now you're trying to read you know what are you doing what are you feeling where is this yeah, yeah. That, that's it that's the nice thing about what he does next is he doesn't really give us anything it, it mm. is you know he's locked into some kind of manic autopilot where he's just running through again the details of his daughter Sophie's abduction mm. and using Kira as the kind of uh, substitute and again hoping to catch somebody in the act of abducting her. It keeps leaving her to sort of wander around the Port Authority building. You're like, dude, please <laughs> just go and get her. Go and get her. Yeah. It plays out beautifully and you, you, you know, you get the moment towards the end where, you know, he breaks down and he, he apologizes to his daughter. You wonder if this is if this has been some sort of catharsis for him, you know, by the worst possible means. But you get kind of this emotional release. It sounds dismissive. Do you get the feeling he's he's come to by the end? He's come to his senses. Well, I, I think he's realized what he's doing. I think there's definitely a moment where he he's conscious of what he's doing, and he he says to Kira, you know, I'm going to take you. You know, your mum's not going to join us here. I'm going to take you to the restaurant where she's working and drop you there. So I think that's him just quickly trying to paper over that before uh, he gets arrested or something. Um, oh, I wonder, though. I, I get the feeling, you know, this is the third time we've seen him going through these motions. And I get the feeling that this time he's kind of, he's relived it in a way that's much more, you know, much more immediate and much more final than the others. And, you know, with, with the previous yeah. two scenes, he just kind of goes spinning off. There's There's no resolution to the situation because how can there be? But in this case, because there's a child involved and his carefully hatched plan hasn't worked and yeah but i think he also knows how futile it is to keep kind of revisiting this and putting her potentially in danger is a trigger for that sort of conscious realization i think and he does say to her you know you're a, you're a good girl you know do you do you know that you know he just wants to kind of re reassure her that she's done nothing wrong which you know maybe is like you say him talking to his daughter or just talking directly to kira there, there is a nice moment right at the end where Akira just looks at him and says, "It's okay, I love you," and you can see it on his face, like, "Oh my God, wow!" Like it's, it's huge. Just that, that simple affection from a, a child with nothing other than truth. Mm. It's odd. I wonder. I wonder if Kerrigan's ever going to make a, a film as emotional as this again because I haven't seen Clean Shaven. Claire Dolan was quite frosty. It was quite a chilly distance film. I've never felt the urge to revisit that. And The Girlfriend Experience again. He co-directed the first season, which had a single storyline. And that's, again, very cold and very distanced. 
it's, it's very cynical and it's uh, it's quite nasty in places. And then for the second season of the girlfriend experience, they actually um, they did two separate storylines. They did one story that he directed, and then immediately after that, there's another story that Amy Semitz directed, and they're very different in tone. And his his was even colder again. It was uh, <laughs> very 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 cold indeed. I mean, I I definitely came away from this thinking that either you know American independent films of this quality don't exist anymore, or for some reason i just don't see them you know i don't have access to them you know because maybe you know it's over a year of lockdown now and mostly i'm watching stuff on netflix or amazon and maybe films like this have kind of lost their gateway yeah lost the, lost their route to an audience yeah. yeah which is actually it's heartbreaking because this is what the type of cinema you need to balance out the, the big kind of hollywood product which you know i also enjoy one of the reviews for this um mentions the uh, apologies if the pronunciation's wrong but i've only ever seen it in print and never heard it said the the dardem brothers and it it definitely reminds me like the style reminded me of their film two days one night it's that constant following one character staying with that person over an extended period and it it was very very similar you know similar sort of intimacy and focus but yeah i've i've not seen anything like this in american cinema for, for quite some time yeah it feels like everything has this kind of certain polish and a you know even the sort of indie movies feel like they're decent budgets you know up around five ten million dollars and i think there's something you know this film i think it was a three-man crew right you know essentially for shooting and they didn't lock off any locations they just shot live they brought in extras so that they had less people staring at the camera but they shot live at all the locations it feels like maybe that part of the uh, the american cinematic landscape has been lost i'm still staggered i mean i know there's a handful of, um, maybe there's a lot of them being made and we're just not seeing them that there isn't an iphone revolution in filmmaking because i cut short films for people and i keep saying you know when, when they're talking about ideas they have and you know they have to get the money together and you know, they have to get you know a, you know a dop and a camera it's like really if you've got the idea and if you've got the scripts and if you've got people to do it, then just film it on your phone. I know Steven Soderbergh's kind of the poster boy for shooting with an iPhone, and he shoots very stylishly. The High Flying Bird, I thought, looked looked really good. Yeah, but I think he has quite a big rigs. But yes, it's still uh, an iPhone. But you know, you have to yeah. be dumping data like every <laughs> every three minutes or something, don't you? But I'm I'm staggered that you know there isn't like a whole genre of of iPhone made movies like this because you, you can do it, and you know people will get used to having crispy video texture to look at after a while you know within 10 minutes your eye will adjust to it and I, I don't know i just feel like as you say all the indie movies seem to have a budget of you know seven figures upwards so well, why 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 do you need that to make a movie yeah, maybe there just isn't the distribution access for stuff that has a lower aesthetic but i mean you can get stuff on amazon prime that's shot for next to nothing you can self-publish onto amazon prime yeah that's that's what i do with my film and you know people used to make films in 16 millimeter and blow them up to 35 all the time uh people made things on dv i just don't see why well you mentioned shane carruth earlier and there there is that great story about primer where they basically went out and shot the whole film on digital cut it together used that as a digital storyboard and then reshot it on 16 mil with one roll spare that's what i say to people you know it's like even you know if you shoot it on your phone then a you can iron out all the problems for the real shoot if it ever happens if you don't get another crack at it at least you've given it a go and you've got a perfect calling card rather than just a script that somebody's going to read 10 pages of and then get bored if it doesn't immediately catch them sure you know, you've got a version of it to show them show them your intention um but yeah, rant aside, I'm I'm just surprised there isn't like an, a niche for good indie movies shot like that. I know Tangerine was the big hit shot on an iPhone with anamorphic lenses. Um, I, I'm surprised that didn't open the floodgates to more. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and I think, you know, films like this are inspiring, you know, that it's a kind of masterclass in minimalism, isn't it? You know, all you need really is a, a kind of, I want to say like a beautifully simple concept, but you know, this is, you know, an inability to process grief leading to mental illness. You know, it's not the easiest sell in the world, but you know, you get an actor that can kind of inhabit that role. I know Damien Lewis spent 
some time talking to people with mental illness some recovered some in the midst and use that to inform the performance so you do need to kind of get into it but you get a good actor some basic kit you can definitely shoot something maybe not to this standard i think he's an excellent filmmaker with a kind of masterful touch you recommended this yeah i recommended it because um i I remembered it being really good, but that's having seen it once in 2005, 2006. I watched it again for the podcast last year, last late summer, autumn or something. And then we didn't come around to doing it until you know now. So I watched it a third time. And each time, which is very unusual, you know, watching movies for me for a podcast, each time I watched it, it got better. And, and it, it, you know, I already I liked it from the beginning, but it got better and better. Um, and you know, for the third time, I found it quite quite difficult to watch emotionally. Yeah, that's it. So it's uh, I I just think it's from from what had been like you know a fairly offhand recommendation because it's a lesser known film, and I thought it deserved mm. a bit more exposure. It's come to be a recommendation as you know a searing sort of minimal masterpiece. Yeah, it's it's quality. Yeah. And I think it's not very often you watch a film and like the first time you watch it, the fact that you don't know what's going to happen is kind of really harrowing and the second time you watch it when you do know what's going to happen it's equally as harrowing yeah. i loved it as a film I, it's not very often something starts and you're just anxious all the way through it from beginning to end but also when it's finished you do kind of just look at it as a filmmaker and think wow just go out and shoot something it, it's not that difficult if you uncomplicate the process do it with one actor tiny crew you can still get something like extremely cinematic and you know deeply personal and very moving and you know a really intense experience for the audience 